Welcome to Life Radio, where we practice collective reflection on modern life. I'm Lawrence. I'm Maureen. I'm Danielle. Every episode, we choose a topic, find a question, and dive in. Today, we're reflecting on self-care. Okay, which is a juicy topic for all three of us. And before we dive all the way in, we're going to, as we usually do, come up with a question. So what questions do we want to start exploring before we pick one? What's coming up for you all these days around self-care? I have noticed some backlash recently in the culture around the concept of self-care. And I'm curious about why that is. What is going on that we are thinking self-care is something that is a privilege or maybe shouldn't happen or is luxurious or extravagant. I don't know what it's about. I'm also curious because I've seen it and feel it. Yeah, and why did self-care ever become separate from just from normal life? life? <laughs> just living? What happened? Yeah. Hmm. And also the, the commodification of it, right? So now in consumerist society, self-care is about purchasing these experiences, right? It's an industry. Thank you, Gwyneth Paltrow. Go get some worm suckers on your body. What? What's happening? <laughs> How do we get Okay, it? I have a question Cut. about that. <laughs> Can we take it back? <laughs> I'm interested in like generational opinions, like differences in generational opinions about self-care. Think about my parents, my grandparents, me, and then like my little nibblings these days. Like, how does self-care show up? in all those, all those different age groups. Yeah, and I think across gender is a very mm. interesting way to look at it too. How do different genders partake in and perceive of self-care? Oof. And even what is self-care? That's an interesting one. Just going, going right down to the root of it. <laughs> Taking it to the definitional. It's my favorite place always. I'm intrigued by that question, actually. Well, does that feel like what we're, what we're rolling in? Let's go. Great. What is self-care? Maureen? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you looking at me? Well, my mantra is secure your own oxygen mask before helping others. What? When did you come up with that mantra? It's well, on the airplanes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you not listening through the safety <laughs> demonstration you when you fly? On? <laughs> um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, this is what the flight attendants say when they're talking to you about, you know, in case of loss of cabin pressure, the oxygen masks will fall down. And if you're traveling with, say, children or someone else, secure your own oxygen mask before securing that of others. The idea being that if you pass out while you're trying to put the mask on your child, you're not going to be of any use to your child or your traveling companion. And I think that's a very apt metaphor for life because if I'm not grounded, if I'm not energized, if I'm not healthy, if I'm not clear, if I'm not rested, all of these things, how can I show up and be of service to my community or to the planet? And I think that, you know, having worked in the social justice realm for a long, long time, there's often this idea that if you're not spending every waking moment of your life and every ounce of energy you know, fighting for change, you're not committed to the cause or you're selfish or something like that. And 
I think it's actually completely counterproductive to approach social change that way. So I think self-care is whatever keeps us healthy and grounded and energized to live into the world we want to create. Boom. I had to just make that up on the spot. So (laughs) (laughs) glad it landed for you, Lawrence. Yeah. Yeah, that that resonates with me. And I want to talk at some point about like how privilege shows up in conversations about self-care and actual self-care. But I really agree. Like it is really frustrating. And I'm in conversations like this on a pretty regular basis where the notion of taking care of yourself before taking care of others is like demeaned. Yeah. It's like you don't get to take care of yourself first. And it's really problematic. And there's this quote that came up in a small group of mine that I'm in. I cannot remember who it's by. I think it's maybe by Parker Palmer. It's a poem. He's a poet. He's not a poem. He's probably also a poem. <laughs> <laughs> it essentially says, if I give you a gift that I'm I'm not capable of giving to you, like I'm being disingenuous. Wow. And that just resonates so strongly with me. So yeah, self-care for me, my de- definition of it is all of the things it takes for me to do to myself or to do with myself or for myself so that I have additional to give. What about you, Danielle? Well, what's coming up for me is thinking about different collective meditation spaces that I've been in where we're actually trying to access the space between us as an additional entity. And having experienced the nourishing qualities of that collective connection in various ways in these meditation spaces, but also in collaborative spaces, one of the things I learned is that if I haven't handled what's going on for me on a basic level, then I'm actually not available to swim in those collective waters. Mm -hmm. And so for me, self-care could be anything that prepares me to be available for what's beyond me. Yeah. Yeah. Into that. I like that definition. What do those things look like in all of our lives? But maybe Danielle, you want to start? I learned a lot about this at Infinite Growth. We use a tool called the Wheel of Life, which starts as a linear sort of mathematical way of looking at where is your time spent. And I had a terrible habit of working all the time which I didn't realize was getting in the way of actually being creative. And so when I started working with the Wheel of Life and I saw how much time I was putting into work, I began to notice other parts of my life like leisure or spirituality or learning or relationships and wondering why did I not feel it was okay to put time into those things and just slowly started blocking out time for things like meditation class or taking a lunch walk outside or one practice that I have when it's warm enough is every day when I finish work getting myself to the beach I've got the routine down to 15 minutes where I can get to the beach get underwater and I run into the water and as I'm going under 
And as I submerge myself, I imagine that the whole day has been cleared away. Whoa. And then when I come up and I gasp for that breath, because the water is freezing cold here, I imagine that everything has changed. And I imagine all the neural pathways in my mind just reforming and pay a lot of attention to what are the thoughts that are looping in my mind and how to care for those so that they don't become a reality. Because these looping thoughts, they actually, they actually define what our reality is. So self-care for me is in part noticing what is the quality of things on my mind, what is the quality of things happening in my body, and how am I keeping it all moving? You know, what's like happening in my brain right now is, like, that's how you're so goddamn magical. Because <laughs> you baptize yourself every day. <laughs> wow. Come up there, man. <laughs> I mean, I have been. It is magical. And, yeah, I'm just, okay, heard. <laughs> now I have the secrets. <laughs> that should be a new way of framing self-care. You too can be magical. <laughs> just totally. go swimming every day. Yeah. Every day in the ocean. I'm here for it. Uh, some things I've been practicing, or some ways I've been practicing self-care lately. So every Saturday, I, like for the last year or so, I've been doing like a one-hour meditation like a seated meditation. And for the last two months, I've been doing like a one hour walk, like walking meditation. And that just like opens up so much space in my mind and my body. So that feels very grounding. And yeah, like it makes me available to things beyond me, people and non-people things. I've been in the habit lately of taking like rosemary baths. <laughs> so that feels great. You're like, I grow a bunch of rosemary, and so I, when I need to trim my rosemary bushes, I like cut the trimmings and put them in a pot of water on the stove, boil that for half an hour to an hour, and then strain the rosemary pieces out, fill a bathtub with hot water, pour that rosemary liquid tea into the bath, and like light a candle wow. and like play some music. <laughs> <laughs> just like lay back and just like exist in my body and water. And that feels, that feels pretty great. So shout out to my coworker, May Lisa, for teaching me about how to actually boil rosemary. And shout out to e our friend Iraq for lighting candles in the bathroom as like a part of ritual practice. Like you could just do that anytime you're in the bathroom. So that's been feeling good lately. And cooking. I love cooking. And cooking can be a chore. I know lots of people for whom cooking is a chore. <clears throat> <laughs> I see that raised hand, Maureen. But when I have time and space to get good ingredients or just simple ingredients and play music in my kitchen, go through my little recipe cards. I have like a stack of my favorite recipe cards. And so go through a favorite recipe and just like pay a lot of attention to like chopping garlic and trying to figure out how the heck to chop onions without making my eyes water. <laughs> Just like a lifelong journey, it seems. And then sitting down to eat like a bowl of the soup that I made and then freeze the rest so that I am not hungry <laughs> during the rest of the work week. Uh, feels, yeah, like it just grounds me in a way that lets me be in my body, in my mind, feel good, and then available for 
all of the other things in life that are just like hectic and wild. I'm available to come over for dinner anytime, Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> My self-care is having other people cook for me, so I don't have to. <laughs> no, but I think it's interesting that water, that connection to water as a thread amongst all of us with self-care. Hmm. I'm, I love the ocean in particular. So being near the water is definitely a form of self-care for me. I sometimes joke that I was meant to have been born on a tropical island and there was a mix-up and I was born on Long Island instead. But um, yeah, like the beach, the sun, the, the ocean is is very rejuvenating for me. And then I think some of the typical things, you know, yoga and meditation and going for a walk, getting lots of sleep, things like that. But also some things for me related to just coming to really learn, just coming to know myself and then manage my time and energy in particular ways. So one of the most revolutionary things in my life was learning that I'm an introvert because I always thought being an introvert meant being shy. And then a few years back, I learned, no, it's about where you draw your energy from. And if you're introverted, you draw your energy from being alone. And if you're an extrovert, you know, you kind of recharge your batteries by being around people. And I'm so outgoing. I love being around people that I always thought I was an extrovert. But once I realized I'm an introvert, it completely changed how I manage my time. So for me, self-care is about making sure I have plenty of time and space every week to just have alone time where I don't have to be with anyone and I can do my own thing and be in my own company and and recharge my batteries that way. And then around sleep too. So I've been learning a bit about um, how scientists are discovering that everyone is born with a, what they call a chronotype. It's a particular sleep schedule that people really are born with. So there's like a certain time your body naturally wants to go to sleep and a certain number of hours of sleep your body wants to get in a certain time of the morning that you wake up. And everyone's is different. And our society is really geared towards morning people. Like the fact that you're expected, most people are expected to be at the office at 9 a.m. works for people who are fine with getting up, you know, a few hours before that. Um, but for people like me who are night owls, you know, that's really problematic. And until I started working for myself and could set my own schedule and just revert to my natural sleep schedule, you know, I go to bed when I'm tired and I wake up when my body wakes up. That has been like the ultimate form of self-care because I've realized that having to wake up many hours earlier than my body naturally wants to in order to go to a nine to five job just meant I was spending my entire life being tired and not fully energized. So that switch has been a huge form of self-care to me and really protecting that, you know, trying not to schedule things early in the morning when I know that I'm not at my peak has been a really important form of self-care for me. So it seems like a lot of what we're talking about, or there's at least some threads in here, or maybe I'm thinking two different types of self-care we're talking about. One of them is like specific practices and another, which is related to specific practices, but it's more about like how we live our lives, like the frameworks that we think about our lives through. So like Maureen, you were just talking about noticing that you're introverted and then coming up with like a bigger life practice for supporting who you are. And it didn't sound like it really mattered to you. Maybe you, maybe you do many things in those hours by yourself, but it's not like you're saying when I'm by myself, I have to do A and B and C and right. D and E. It's just like, Structurally, <laughs> I need to have a lot of alone time. Yeah. So I'm wondering, part of the bigger conversation that I think is happening around self-care that is problematic 
is the like thingification of self-care or the commodification of self-care, which is really counter to what you were just saying. Right. It means like buying a spa day or buying this jade egg for hundreds of dollars <laughs> that I don't even understand what you do with it, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, it kind of reminds me of um the separation that exists in the popular imagination. Like I always get into arguments with my mom when I go away on a trip or a meditation retreat or something of that nature. And I come home and I have to go back to work. My mom always says, back to reality. (laughs) And I was just recently on a little vacation and, and I was with another person who's going back to work and they were like, back to reality. And I always just want to push back and say, this is reality. (laughs) Right. And it's not separate from, right? But, and so just the idea that having a nourishing space where there's recreation and downtime, the idea that that's not part of reality, I think is in part the block. Of course, when we look at the legacies around who has had access to leisure time and who has not, I mean, that's when we very quickly get into the privilege conversation around, oh, why are there not, you know, generational practices around this? Well, actually, it wasn't allowed for people to have time off or relax. Or I can think of some of my own family members who the idea that they would take time off when they could be working and earning money was absurd. And so maybe there's something going on with the way the economy is shifting and the way that time is shifting that is allowing again for more open space where some of these lifestyle decisions can be made. Like for instance, I don't work in an office. I work at home. And so for me to drive 10 minutes down the street to the beach that I have free access to, when I describe it, it sounds like a luxurious practice, but no, it's really just a simple thing that's enabled by the fact that I work at home. I'm not commuting to Boston. I live in the countryside and I can go get in the water every day. It's free. It's available. And then I'm taking that activity and making the connection to that as self-care, as an integrated part of my life, not as something that I do three times a year for a week in a place other than home. Mm. I mean, you can really trace this all the way back to the Industrial Revolution in a way, because in hunter-gatherer societies, there was an abundance of free time. Right. I, I actually just read this statistic a few days ago where the average amount of work that was done by hunter-gatherers per week was 15 hours. And the rest of the time was spent was spent for community building and leisure and art and all these things that we would probably label self-care today. <laughs> but it was just baked into life. And actually, even today, there are societies where globalization and industrialization and quote-unquote development haven't quite reached there yet and their lives are structured completely differently and there's actually plenty of time for for these practices and so and it's what it's what you're saying it's not separate it's not a separate thing you have to schedule in like oh here's my yoga class it's self-care it's you know it's just life is structured in such a way that it's balanced and we're not it's if you're not in a work-obsessed culture or you're not in a capitalist system where in order to feed your family, you have to work three jobs and forego sleep and many other things, then, you know, it doesn't need to be that it's self-care is not its own entity. It's just, it's just how you live your life. Right. 
Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about for a while, but really acutely in the last couple of months about like the quote unquote work week, where like this like 40 hour structure that our society is, I don't know if obsessed is the right word, but it's a constraint that we feel we cannot break out of. And I keep saying to people, like the 40 hour work week was a victory and a reduction in work hours. <laughs> like people used to work 60 hour work weeks. And before that, it was like 80 hour work weeks. And before that, er, in early era, like early days of the industrial revolution, there were just no limits. Right. Employers did not have constraints around how many hours they could request for you to work. And if you didn't work those hours, they just replaced you with someone else. And so, you know, I feel like we have lost a lot of the perspective on that. that like we went from a majority of leisure time to a minority of leisure time. But still in the last 200 years, we have been reducing the amount of work time and we are still on that trajectory. <laughs> like right. we actually could continue to do it. Right. We can continue to mint, like shrink the amount of work hours we have and increase the number of leisure hours we have, but we just don't, we don't think about it that way. But then I think too what happens is for some people, that's the trajectory. And then for other people who are, say, making minimum wage and have to feed a family where they actually, you know, because if you look at inflation, like real wages are actually going down right mm -hmm. now, right? So it mm -hmm. is the reality that some people have less privilege to have leisure time and therefore time for self-care. So what I see happening is as a correction to our culture of overwork, people in recent years have been lifting up the need for self-care. You know, hey, it's important to secure your own oxygen mask before helping others. But then there's been this backlash where it said, yeah, but that's privileged, right? And and not everyone can do that. And not everyone has the time or money to go to yoga or whatever. And then what I see happening is guilt around the people who still want to do self-care, especially mothers. I think women and mothers is who I hear it the most from, where, you know, they feel like putting their own needs first is a problem or they feel guilty about it. And I think that this backlash where we're saying, no, it's a privilege. I don't know. There's some mm -hmm. element here where I guess my question is, how do we recognize that having time and space to take care of yourself is a privilege in some way, but also not then make it a guilt-ridden activity? Because I don't think that's the answer either. I think the answer is, okay, how do we make sure everyone on the planet has time and space to make sure that they can take care of themselves and we take care of each other, but not just say, well, because this is a privileged thing, like everyone who does it should feel guilty about it because that doesn't serve anyone either. And I think it especially doesn't serve women. Well, and I think one of the missing links is having collective practices of care because, you know, when my self-care is for me alone, I go, you know, um, it can feel disembodied from the rest of my life. Whereas when a community is coming together and caring for each other, a lot of the barriers disappear where, you know, the, the financial barrier of childcare may disappear when there's a group of people who all agree that everyone needs a certain amount of space each week to themselves or 
just the intention around the care changes when it's oriented not towards me and my own individual liberation, but towards collective Mm. liberation. And in those ways, it doesn't have the same feeling of self-indulgence because it's much more of like, I'm putting on my mask so that I can help the rest of the plane put on their mask. Mm-hmm. so that I can be present to what's going on in this crash right now. Totally. And that reminds me of, uh, I think it's John Powell's, John A. Powell's framework of, uh, our friend Gibran talks about this all the time. It's like the Western Enlightenment project of the isolated self, mm-hmm. which at the time of the Enlightenment was like a revolutionary thing. Because in the moment, like if you weren't a king... <laughs> you were just a part of the masses. And so the enlightenment was like, no, 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 you all, like, each of us has an identity that is unique. But we are now at the like logical conclusion of the enlightenment, which is like, we are so isolated, we're so individualized, we're so atomized that we be- we don't understand how connected we are to other people. And so this like, self And I catch myself all the time, and I've done it in this conversation, thinking of the self as an individual, as opposed to thinking of self as like co-created with the people who are around me. Like if I think about who I actually am, like I'm made of a bunch of quotes from other people. (laughs) (laughs) Like my parents supported me, my community supports me. I the only way I'm able to afford living in Boston is because I have a roommate. We share space. We share water. Like there's so many ways that I am connected to people around me that the idea of me being an isolated individual doesn't even make sense once I start paying attention. And so, yeah, right. Like self-care is problematic when you believe, as you were saying, Danielle, that it's like individualized and isolated. Um, So thanks for stepping into that because it right reminds me that oh yeah i too get caught up in the isolation frame um do you mind if i read a quote it's kind of long but please i think it's interesting so i'm reading pleasure activism by adrian marie brown or i should say it's written and gathered by adrian marie brown i'm like a mm, i'm a fifth of the way in and i think there's been maybe 30 pages by her and like a bunch of other pages by other people which i think is an interesting model for a book anywho the section is called Build Communities of Care. It's on page 63 in the chapter Love as Political Resistance. Shift from individual transactions for self-care to collective transformation. Be in community with healers in our lives. Healers, we must make our gifts available and accessible to those growing and changing our communities. Be in family with each other. Offer the love and care we can. Receive the love and care we need. Share your car or meals with a healer in exchange for Reiki sessions. Facilitate a healing group in exchange for massages. Clean a healer's home as barter for a ritual to move through grief. Pay healing forward. Buy sessions for friends. Let our lives be a practice ground where we are learning to generate the abundance of love and care we, as a species, are longing for. I just feel like that's what you were saying. And... It reminded me of actually a period when I did that, where I was underemployed with paid gigs, but I was really committed to 
continuing with my creative practice regardless of, well, it's, it's a longer story of trying to break the fee-for-service paradigm, which I did not do. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> what? <laughs> I really tried. Why not? <laughs> you know, capitalism is big. But I I set up this, this series of arrangements with people, uh, you know, with our friend Susan, who's a sound healer, our friend Andrea, who does Reiki, and a bunch of other people just created these exchanges whereby I was offering them help with their identity and communications and photographs and whatever. And in exchange, I was designing these healing experiences for myself and for others. I was giving them, you know, giving it away as gifts. And I was walking with my mom on the beach one time and I was just explaining to her like, yeah, I'm working with this sound healer. So I'm just giving away a bunch of sessions for birthday presents this year to the men in my life. And she was so amazed that that's how I was transacting in community. But it was really one of the most abundant times of my life where self-care was not something that I was paying for, transact, you know, it was, it was really connecting on a, a different level um, around, and it, it became more of a mutual experience. So it amplified the nourishing effects of the care. Yeah, I I'm a big fan of the barter system, as you may know. And and Danielle, you and I bartered yes. in that period too. Um, I gave some coaching support, and you helped me with communications around my website. And you did infinite growth, and I did infinite growth. That's right, as part mm. of that. And 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 Lawrence and I are part of a group of local consultants who meet monthly just to give each other support. And we are actually experimenting with a time trade circle. So everyone can give and receive support to each other, whether it's through coaching or advice or helping with accounting, bookkeeping, things like that. And every hour is valued equally. So it's not this thing of like, I should be paid more per hour than you. It's like, no, every hour of time is equal to another hour of time. And we just keep track of how much we're giving and taking from the time bank. And so I do think that model is really liberatory in a lot of ways and makes certain forms of care more accessible if maybe you don't have the financial resources to invest, um, but you're willing to trade. And I, and, and, there, and that mutuality is really beneficial, um, including the receiving part. So it, when you were reading that quote, Lawrence, I was struck by the, you know, she said something about receiving the care. And I think, again, for women in particular, that can be really hard in this culture where we're socialized to be caregivers Often we have a block around just letting people do things for us or receiving care or asking for help. And I think, you know, thinking about the ways in which letting someone take care of you is also a form of giving because it actually feels good to take care of the people you love can really shift some of that. So that's interesting because in the fall, I ran an experiment. Uh, I do some work around trying to move us to post-patriarchy futures. And I'm really interested in working with like men or folks who identify as men. Um, and so a workshop that I led was around care. I forget what it was called. It was, I think it was called like mapping, mapping our ecosystems of care. So in this lane of the conversation for sure. Uh, and one of the things we talked about, one of the activities we did was um, reflect on a time where you gave care and a time where you received care. And we also identified that we were re 
all six of us were really terrible at receiving mm. care. We felt like we had strong memories of times we were caring for people, but we felt like we none of us knew how to ask for care. Like that for sure was clear. And we um, felt really uncomfortable when we were receiving it. And then, of course, we talked about like the gendered nature of like care in society, where even if we thought that we were bad at receiving care, it didn't mean that people weren't caring for us all the time, right? So there's like that for sure is part of the conversation. But it was still astonishing to me that even in that space, we all felt like we weren't good at receiving care. I I have a theory that part of this is connected to the fact that again, women in particular, are not good at saying no to certain requests. I actually have a a fantasy of doing a workshop for women on how to say no and feel good about it. And the way I think that connects is that when you're not good at saying no to certain requests, like when you feel it'll be depleting or, you know, for whatever reason, it's an honest no, you assume that other people also won't say no, even when it would be honest for them to do it. And so we struggle to ask for support because we don't have any way to trust that um, when we get a yes to our request, it's, it's genuine and the person wants to do it. I think we walk around with guilt about saying no. And so we assume no one else will say no because they would feel guilty and that then we're taking advantage of each other and it kind of just spirals. And I think that if we learn to like lovingly and honestly say no to certain requests, um, you know, that protects some of our life energy, which is a form of self-care. It also means that someone else who's eager to give that support would then have the opportunity to give it to that person. You know, we say no, it opens the door for, for the right person to give that support. And it would help us be freer in asking for support because we trust that the people in our lives can discern whether they want, want to say yes or no to us. So... That's my theory. Yeah, there's a quote that I read in a book. I think it's a it's this book called Urban Tantra. I'm working my way through it right now. It's quite good. Uh, and it's this really simple line that your ability to say no is what makes your yes a choice. Yep. It's like so simple, but exactly what you're saying. If we don't trust our own no, and then we don't trust other people's no's, yeses are not choiceful. I'm really interested in yes. And because I think in the same way that we don't say no, I think when we say yes, it's not always true either. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I feel like we're in, you know, we're in a time of no, of like women learning how to say no. And I just wonder what it would be like if we focus on yes. What is your yes? And what do you want? What is your desire? And you can have that. And to just stoke that, um, which I think obviously learning the no is a part. I mean, you need to know both ends of the spectrum. Exactly. Actually, when when we all worked together, Lawrence and I put up a quote in our project room <laughs> once that said, say no to say yes. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you can't separate the two because whenever you whenever you give an honest no, you're saying yes to something else and you're saying yes to you, but it's like, if you say yes to everything, it dilutes the power of the honest yes. So when you say no, 
you're a lot, you can thrive. Like you're, you're pruning away what you don't need so that your yes is very powerful. Yes. Oh, I just wanted to say that I don't know if you remember, but the first quote poster we made said, say no to say yes. And the second one said, say no to say yes, prune and thrive. No, the first one said, oh. say no to say yes, prune and survive. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. And we changed it to prune and thrive. Yes. I remember these posters. Yeah. <laughs> they were great posters. <laughs> I also randomly was cleaning out my computer yesterday. Hashtag tidying. Thanks, Maureen, for that. <laughs> and. Welcome. I came across that poster. <laughs> this was no hours ago. Anywho, Danielle seemed like you were going to say something, and I'm just also noticing that we, it's, it's getting close to time to bring this plane into a landing. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> you have the last word. What I was thinking about was, what does it mean to say yes to ourselves and to our health and vitality? And... What are the activities and mindsets around that yes that make it something so that we are fully showing up in community? How do we, you know, how do we get beyond the concept that self-care is separate from showing up in our best and most full ways? And yeah, how do we encourage each other to say yes to ourselves, to take that, you're an introvert, take that time or whatever it is that you need. Um, creating the possibility for people, I think, is those types of circles are they create so much thriving. I mean, when you look around at some of the circles that we're all mutually involved in of people just exchanging goods and talents and services and love, and you can see over a period of time the way transformation occurs where Someone's not going back to their previous state. They're mm. actually in a new state. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we need to look to the market for a solution here. I think we need to look towards each other and look inside of ourselves and get it, you know, because the clock is ticking, like lightning could strike. And when it does, I don't think that I'll regret any of the time that I spent caring for myself and my loved ones and my community. Mm. Amen. Amen. All right, that's it for this episode of Life Radio. Thank you for listening to our collective reflection on modern life. We'd love to hear your reactions, and you can find us on Instagram at Life Radio Show. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. -bye.